Hey everybody, Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to The Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to The Archaeology Show, episode 128. On today's show, we talk about ancient chicken eggs, a unique child burial, and Viking textiles. Let's dig a little deeper. All right. Welcome to the show, everyone. How you doing? Good. How are you? Sitting in my solar-cooled RV. <laughs> it is pretty awesome how it's working. Yeah. So we we spent we we missed an episode because we were just slammed with uh, getting stuff done in Reno, Nevada, and part of that was our solar installation on our RV and new lithium batteries. But if you want to hear more about that, I'm sure I will be talking about it with Paul over at the Archaeotech podcast, archpodnet.com forward slash Archaeotech. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely related to archaeology for people who might be tired of hearing of about our RV life. But it's really cool because we can like take this thing out into the middle of nowhere. And I like to do that because I'm an introvert and I don't want to see people ever. But it's also great when you have a really remote archaeological project you need to work on. <laughs> yeah, and if the IRS is listening, that's why this is a business expense. <laughs> so It totally is. <laughs> it really is, though. I mean, there's lots of stuff we do with our business that requires us to be in remote areas for yeah. a long time. And this archaeology project, for example, if this park that happens to be close by to the site that we're on right now I don't know, something happened to it. And actually, there there might be a time when we don't want to be here. We could actually stay closer to the mine, mm -hmm. but still have all our power requirements met because we have three solar panels on the roof and lithium batteries. Yeah, exactly. So, it's all right. Exciting. Like I said, I think we'll probably geek out a little more on the Architect podcast, but I just had to mention it because it's super cool. Mm -hmm. 
So, all right. Well, we got three interesting news articles for you from wildly different walks of life and places and time just periods. time periods, whatever. <laughs> yeah. They literally have nothing to do with each other, aside from the fact that they're archaeology. But this first one really caught my eye and it kind of made the rounds here. And I don't know, we got this from a couple different places. Smithsonian Magazine is where we're linking it from right now. But archaeologists discover and crack an intact 1,000-year-old chicken egg. Now, there's some terms here in this article that they use that we don't necessarily use over here in the Western part of the world. Mm-hmm. For example, they said they found it in human waste in a cesspit, which that might be something you call your little brother or sister, <laughs> but here we call it a privy. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or or even like a, a trash dump, I guess. Yeah, sometimes it gets mixed in together. But yeah, I guess. But they I, said human waste. So, so. it's like specifically like toilet waste. Yeah, toilet yeah. waste. Yeah. So, I okay. mean, people do poop in the garbage, but I'm just saying. But, okay, so here's the thing for me and trash dumps and privies and things. Some Mostly privies. How, how does this stuff get in there? Like, this is a whole chicken egg. And I guess from point A to point D, which results in chicken egg in the bottom of the privy is not too crazy but like you hear about some crazy things that are found in privies yeah. how is this happening well i think it was a uh, with with lack of proper sanitation mm-hmm. you don't put your trash out at the curbside in the morning you put your trash where the hell you put your trash right so sometimes that's just down in the hole with all the other garbage that came out of your body so you're like Oh man, broke this spoon. Well, I gotta go poop, so I guess I'll drop it down the hole. <laughs> I mean, like all times in human life, if you think about it, anything you can just kind of put somewhere and ignore just like doesn't <laughs> just exist like anymore. Get rid of it. Yeah. So if you can flush it down the toilet, there. I mean, we flush lots of weird things down the toilet these oh, days. That's true. You know, yeah. because it just goes to this magical place that nobody knows about and doesn't yeah. exist, and only archaeologists get to have fun with it. Yeah, just like wipe so. it away from your view. Therefore, it's gone. Literally wipe it away. <laughs> so. Oh no. Anyway. No, no more toilet jokes. <laughs> that was your one gimme. Okay. So, anyway, so they yes. found this egg and it was. I, I wrote down what were the exact notes that I had here. First off, archaeologists were astonished. I wrote that down. <laughs> They're uh, always astonished. I know. I know. So. Yeah. Anyway, it's also it's a chicken egg. Yes. So I think we mentioned that. Um, we'll talk about chickens in a, in a little bit here. They often find egg shells and egg right. fragments. I wouldn't say often, but but a lot of times they do because they're they're made out of very not porous isn't the right word, but dissolvable types of materials. Yeah. Yeah. So if the eggshell is decompose. In a, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. If the eggshell is in the right environment, it could just like disappear over a few years. So though the privy environment tends to preserve well, which I think is why you find things in that context often. Right. But let's talk about how they got this out first off, because they didn't break it on site and they didn't break it on purpose either. Mm -hmm. sounds like they broke it in a lab. Yeah. But let's just talk about the excavation because a lot of times, I mean, I've been on digs and stuff where we're working in, you know, hard packed soils and you're using a pickaxe to do it. You have to. Mm -hmm. And there's those, I remember, I'll always remember the excavation at in South Carolina that we did. Actually, it was in North Carolina and off the Cape Fear River. Oh, yeah. And Wilmington. Yeah. And we were digging in sand, essentially. And mm-hmm. you're digging these one-by-one units. And we had some relatively deep deep ones, deep enough that I could stand in one. And I'm digging in this corner unit. So I had basically two sides that I could bring my shovel in from. 
And I think I was probably using a flat shovel and just digging thin slices at a time, just mm-hmm. making my way around this thing. And all of a sudden I hear this little ting mm-hmm. and that is the unmistakable ting of stone. Yeah. And, and there wasn't a lot of stone in no. this. So that was cause for stopping. Right. And yeah. so I was like, oh, I don't know what that is. And you got to resist the urge to just go in there and start digging around it. Mm-hmm. I, I basically started kind of testing the edges with my shovel when I realized it was a little bigger than I expected. It wasn't just like a single projectile point or something like that. I started, you know, just focusing on other areas of the unit. And I took the whole unit down to the level it was supposed to be at. And I basically what we call pedestaled the artifacts that were there. And it turns out I, I ended up spending probably a couple days on it because I had to get in there with, I mean, not very many times in my archaeological life I've had to get in with like brushes and stuff, <laughs> but legit using like brushes and chopsticks because you don't want to use metal tools on this stuff it'll mm-hmm. scratch it it'll deform it but you use like shaped chopsticks and and other things and it was a cache of projectile points mm-hmm. the point is i wouldn't have found that had i just been chunking out the soil right you know so very delicate it really is and sometimes depending on the, the matrix or the strata that you're in you have to be more delicate than others mm-hmm. if it's super hard well sometimes you got to use a pickaxe mm-hmm. if it's uh not then you you can be and should be a little bit more delicate so the fact that they pulled this out intact was pretty amazing that they even saw it like that well i imagine that given the context of what they're digging in it was probably pretty soft to begin with right because mm-hmm. i think i read that part of the reason why it was preserved is because it was on a cushion of of human waste basically oh no let's use the words <laughs> okay let's use the words it was pillowed <laughs> in soft human waste <laughs> yeah which created an anaerobic no oxygen conditions preventing decay why well, are you trying to be like that down like trying to be like a little sexy while talking about <sighs> because i think that's gonna be i think it's a good band name <laughs> pillowed in soft human waste <laughs> oh anyway well Obviously, I don't know what the conditions were actually like, but that gives me the impression that they're probably working in fairly soft soils to begin with and that they were probably taking care to not to just mow through anything. Sounds like even calling it a soils is a little bit generous. Yeah, that might be generous. Yeah, Yeah. because when this when, when human waste, if this thing was used for a long period of time. And, you know, it's in a it's in an environment in the Mediterranean where, I mean, they don't get super cold. They don't get crazy hot. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like a cave, you know, when you've got this privy environment. So it's entirely possible that this stank really bad and was really soft. Yeah. The realities of excavating a privy are not as romantic as you would think. It's not great. (laughs) Yeah. Now, a lot of times when you see privies over like in this country, I mean, when you start actually digging into those soils, I mean, the smells just come out. Yeah, they do. But it's not like liquid or even soft anymore. I mean, it's it's the usually they're filled in. Yeah. Which is why, you know, it's like, oh, we moved and we're putting up another house here. We're doing something and they just dump a bunch of dirt into it until it kind of just goes away mm-hmm. until archaeologists come and find it. So, yep. yeah. Uh, but this one, I don't know if it was filled in or not, but it doesn't sound like doesn't sound like it was all the way down. Maybe it was deep enough that if they did dump soil on top of it, it just kind of protected it. Mm-hmm. So, yep. It seems, I, I wrote down in my notes here that it, it may have been cracked during excavation. They were a little unclear on that, but I thought for sure they said that, I, I thought they said that something about cracking it in the lab. I, but I think I read that as well. Yeah. 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 But either way, what's interesting to me, they just kind of glossed over this. They said they were able to repair the crack, but the yolk mostly leaked out. And I'm yeah. like, the yolk? Yeah. The yolk was in there? Yeah. 
That's insane. That is crazy. It's like, what is that made of that it'll be preserved for a thousand years? That's Ugh. crazy. That's insane. Yeah, it's totally crazy. Yeah. The remaining yolk was preserved for future DNA analysis, they said. I'm mm-hmm. going to go with probably a chicken. No. Um, well, they might be able to get some animal like domestic breed or domestication or whatever right. i don't know what the specifics are between different chickens but well i have some info on chickens oh, here do you coming up all so, right first i wanted to mention this was as again you got to kind of read between the lines here this was essentially a crm project mm-hmm. so that's pretty cool uh, the excavation is in advance of development of a new neighborhood in the city so i'm happy of two things one a crm project finds this kind of thing and two that you know they have CRM <laughs> because yeah. there's a lot of countries that don't. Yeah, they just dig and dig and dig and nobody cares. Right. So, all right. The pit also contained uh, a bunch of other things because again, why wouldn't you just throw your stuff in there? You know, you're heading out to the pooper. I know. So there's bring one, your trash with you. Right. So there's one like universal here. There were three dolls thrown in there made out of bone. And then an oil lamp that they also found. Probably a bunch of other things, but this is just what was mentioned. And I'm like... Dolls? Dolls. Always dolls. Was that like punishment? Like, you were so bad today. Throwing your doll into the toilet. Well, I'm sure it was a brother or sister, for that matter, that threw a doll straight in. Yeah. But I'm like, what archaeological project has not found a doll or a doll head or something like that? There's always dolls. Yeah. We, We had a project where we were basically going around people's backyards in a pontoon boat and oh, yeah. uh, in Virginia. And at some point, there was a pretty creepy hairless doll fastened to the front of that boat <laughs> as like our you know, as like our ship's like moniker a Barbie, or something. Like a Barbie, right? Yeah. yeah. No, it wasn't. Well, was it a Barbie or was it like a bigger doll? Oh, was it? I can't remember. I don't know. It was disturbing, to say the <laughs> least. Anyway, they had an archaeologist in there, um, Lee Perry Gal. Uh, I think that's how you say it, uh, who's an archaeology expert on poultry in the ancient world. Talk about things to specialize on. Mm. Anyway, she says that chickens were domesticated originally in Southeast Asia around 6,000 years ago. I had no idea. Chickens are basically in every corner of the planet right now. Yeah. And uh, apparently, and so they were domesticated in Southeast Asia 6,000 years ago. But I'm wondering, like, were they still kind of everywhere at that point? Are they old enough that chickens have made it to all parts of the world or, you know, where have they been brought in? That's actually... Yeah, like, did it start in one place and just spread across the world or... Well, I'll tell you what. On this show, I've been taking a task for my chicken knowledge in the past by one of our our more savvy members and I'm sure that I will get a report on chickens and where they live and where they come from. I'm counting on you, Jill. So, anyway... I will come back with that information. I just realized I probably should have asked to begin with because, again, th- this is no joke. Like We do have somebody who is kind of a chicken expert at our, as a, one of our members. So anyway, she says it took um, some time to enter the human diet because early on when they were domesticated, they were actually used for cockfighting. Um, they were considered beautiful and uh, exhibited in ancient zoos and even given as presents to kings. Hmm. And Wow. Yeah. That's- not the chicken of today. No. So Rachel's family has like a, you know, we all, we have like a dollar limit. We get like a secret Santa for her family. Oh, yeah. But whoever's got, whoever I've got this year is getting chickens <laughs> because I'm treating them like a king. They better be <laughs> laying golden eggs or something then. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, just back on chickens. One of the earliest known sites with evidence of chicken farming is in Israel. And that was 2,300 years ago after Alexander the Great conquered Jerusalem. So chickens been around and part of the part of the people's everyday lives for a long time. Yeah. 
Although not as long as you would think. I mean, as much chicken as we eat today. Yeah. And I, that we deal with today. It seems like it should just be around forever. Yeah, it does seem that way. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, that was interesting. I, it's really cool finding a whole egg like that. Uh, they did, like I said, put it back together and just so they can have the whole egg. And it looks, when you see the pictures, it looks like about the size of a chicken egg. It, it does. doesn't look crazy. Yeah. It maybe yeah. looks a little bit bigger than I expected, but sure. but not by a lot. Yeah, not by a lot. It's hard to tell how big this woman's hands are because there's yeah. no scale. But yeah, yeah. it's, uh, yeah, I mean, if I'd seen it just laying there, I would be like, oh, a chicken egg. <laughs> so, yep. All right. Well, we're going to go, we're going to kind of stay in the bird theme here and we're, we're going to go north a little bit and talk about finches and mouths back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code TAS. Hey, podcast fans. I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 128. And we are moving to Poland and a place called... Tunnel Wilkie Cave. I don't know how to say that. The only Polish I ever learned was <laughs> something to welcome the groom's parents who only spoke Polish to a <laughs> wedding for my best friend and her new husband, where I did the service. <laughs> That's the only Polish I and I forgot it. So <laughs> anyway, so this article is uh it's it's called Girl Buried with Finch in Her Mouth Puzzles Archaeologists. So we've had astonished archaeologists. Oh, and now we're puzzled. And now we're puzzled. Perfect. So there you go. This was on Live Science, and I also found they linked to the original German journal. So I just linked to that. Uh, you check it out in the show notes. Yeah. It's in German. Yeah. So if you want to read it in the original German, then uh, you can do that. <laughs> but anyway, the girl was buried with, <laughs> it says the head of at least, I don't know how they don't know like that there's not more, but at least one finch in her mouth hundreds of years ago. Well, it's probably because of the MNI thing, minimum number of individuals, because you're talking about skulls, right? So you pick, so MNI yeah. is determined by choosing a portion of the skeleton mm -hmm. to count up the number of individuals there. So, because you don't know because you've just got pieces. So in this case, since it was disarticulated, they probably picked a piece to be the MNI piece and they have one or however many and that's how they know it's at least one. Yeah. I'd like to see the original article to see if this is just somebody, whoever wrote this article, Owen Jarris, if they just 
wrote that and it was an interesting choice of words because I would think that you'd be able to t- tell that there was at least more than one. Like if there's one, great, but it's only the head. Like it's not a lot to a finch head. Yeah, I think it, if it's fragmented and it just gets yeah. weird. Like you yeah. remember when we were working in Miami and we had all those just fragments of bone all mixed in together. It just got it just got a little weird trying to figure out yeah. how many individuals you had. So you you have to scientifically choose one piece and that piece is the the one that you use to count your individuals. It's really the only way to do it and it can yeah. be wrong, but it's at least consistent. I suppose. Well, Interesting thing, and this has been a recurring theme as well throughout a lot of our articles, but this was discovered by Waldemar, I'm going to get this wrong, Chemilski, I don't know, of southern Poland. Anyway, he discovered it during excavations in 1967 and 1968, and it was not analyzed in detail until now. And I'm like, you didn't see the finch in the skull? Like, <laughs> you didn't see that? Like, back in to go, what is this? Let's take a look. Yeah. But anyway. interesting. Yeah. It, it gets really interesting, actually, because... This is all not that long ago. Radiocarbon dating indicates that the girl died around 300 years ago. And according to the research here, people in Europe apparently stopped burying their dead in caves where this girl was found uh, during the Middle Ages, making this burial uh, highly unusual. Oh, yeah, that is weird. So I don't know why they stopped burying their dead in caves. It was probably some religious or superstitious thing, but... Probably religious, yeah. yeah. It just goes to show, too, that we make all these proclamations you read these archaeology books you might read a textbook when you're you know taking a class or something like that you can't take the definitive statements that are made in these books as actual definitive statements right they're definitive statements for the evidence we have at hand yeah because this this pure statement here that people stopped burying their dead in caves people never stopped doing anything yeah i guarantee you somebody dropped a body in the cave last week in europe right like yeah. that doesn't mean they there's were buried always there, outliers but. and there's always populations that do things just a little bit differently than mainstream so and there's always evidence we just haven't found yet yeah now now that being said we do go under the principle of if we find something it's a common example of that thing because finding uncommon examples of things because of their rarity would be rare mm-hmm. it would be nearly impossible so we have to assume that oh if we found all these cave burials during this time period and then all of a sudden we don't have any cave burials dated to this time period you could make the statement that they quote stopped burying their people in caves but that mm-hmm. doesn't mean everybody stopped like you said right so anyway cave burials are generally absent for historical periods in europe the article says the bird in the mouth is also unusual so it's unusual on two accounts here no other examples are known from this time in Europe, uh, at least not that we know of. And that's my contribution to that little statement. Right. But it's also an unusual burial for the time. So clearly we've got a whole suite yeah. of unusual factors going on here. Right. says a girl died between 10 and 12 years of age. Her bones showed signs of arrested growth in later years. Uh, later is, I guess, 10 to 12. I don't know. Yeah. Possibly a result of metabolic disease. So she had some stuff going on. It looked like her bones had stopped growing. They can mm-hmm. tell that because, uh, well, they can tell that for a number of ways, I guess, depending on what sort of... Fusions had happened yeah. or not happened and stuff like that. And, and I think if your bones stop growing, then they start behaving in other ways. Mm-hmm. And then they can tell that in mm-hmm. like a you know 10 to 12 year old girl. Mm-hmm. So there's no evidence of trauma. No evidence that she was like bludgeoned or anything like that. No clues as to how she died. And except for the bird in her mouth, there were no other grave goods. Hmm, so, and okay, just to not, not, well, not be devil's advocate, but just to, to ask, like, they're sure that the bird was placed at the time of death. <laughs> Good question. 
It's the head. Yeah, which is weird. And I'm looking at this picture too. It like literally like looks like there's a little bird head sitting in the mouth of yeah. the skull, which all of this just seems weird to me. Yeah, it's interesting. Like was she was she placed in there and then I don't know, another animal dragged a bird head into her mouth. I mean, any number of morbid things could have happened. It's very possible. Yeah. yeah. Did she, uh, did a bird fly in there and she had one of those post-death spasms and just like chopped its little head off and kept her, <laughs> I mean, I don't really know. Oh my know. God, that's gruesome. <laughs> I mean, when we're already talking about a rare circumstance of a burial, we may as well talk about the rare ways the finch could have gotten in there. That's true. And like, I'm just thinking about the way the things that bodies do after they're dead and one thing is is that the mouth falls open like your jaw just falls mm-hmm. open and it's like this gaping hole and you're right like there could be any number of ways that yeah an animal a bird or whatever got in there postmortem yeah and then the just being the head like there's also any number of reasons why the body and the head could have been disconnected. Yeah. Another animal could have dragged it away or something like you said. The bird could have gone in there and maybe even died in there. And then another animal dragged its carcass out and the head got caught on the teeth. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of, I would like to see better evidence that the bird head was placed at the time of death. That's all I would say. I guess the one thing that's certain is that she was buried in a cave. She was. And people weren't doing that very much. And that is weird. So you can't assume that there's some weird stuff going on with this burial. So DNA indicates that she was likely from north of Poland, uh, possibly modern day Finland or Karelia, which is not a place I'd heard of, which Hmm. is basically like... It looks like it's essentially Russia, but like not not really Russia because I think you know Russia was around then. But it was more like that whole region was called Karelia. Uh, I don't even know if like, I'm pronouncing that right. Like the north coast up there. No, like, like like I think like east of Finland. So Finland and like oh, east of Finland. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it was like kind where of it's a, connected up there. Right. And I don't yeah. know if it's like maybe not Russia yet, but or something like that. But uh-huh. that whole area, kind of north of Poland and east of Finland, was well. That's pretty far away from poland then isn't it yeah i mean not like not like way north but you know adjacent to poland i guess Hmm, interesting Uh, a little historical information that might help from 1655 to 1657 the area was occupied by an army led by king charles now they said the king charles like the 10th gustav and i'm not sure if that was just a misprint or what but wouldn't it be king charles gustav the 10th of sweden or something and it says king charles x gustav i'm assuming means the 10th but i don't really know yeah. Anyway, King Charles X Gustav of Sweden. Mm-hmm. The army that occupied that area uh, included soldiers from, again, Finland and Karelia. So now we're starting to find out, okay, maybe she came there with the army. Right. Soldiers of that time often traveled with their families. Mm-hmm. Uh, most low-ranked soldiers traveled with wives, mistresses, and sometimes maidservants, which tells me I'm RVing wrong. <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, Look, I don't care what happens. You're not going to bury me in a cave with a bird in my mouth, all right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and here I even wrote a note. Karelia was a region that stretched over modern-day Russia and Finland. so mm. But not like all of Russia that we know today, but like that mm. western portion of it. So the Karelians believed that if someone died in a forest, they had to be buried in a forest rather than a cemetery. Oh. And it appears rooted, not my words, rooted uh no pun intended in (laughs) cosmological conceptions of a forest being like a cemetery i don't think a forest is like a cemetery but yeah that's yeah interesting but okay so but if you die in a forest you you get buried in a forest it seems like the girl was 
likely there as a result of this occupation. And then for whatever reason, probably whatever disease caused her to stop growing, she died there. Yeah. So so maybe this is a nod to the death ceremony, I suppose, yeah. for the this group of people that were, that were displaced while they're on this army march. Yeah. And it seems like some more information, some more, I guess research needs to be done on those cultures because yeah. it's not the people that live there. Right. It's people that were visiting there through this conflict and occupation. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, again, I don't know the pronunciation, but Ojkow or O-J-C-O-W Castle is nearby uh, and actually housed a lot of soldiers and their families. So it was like right next to the forest there. The Finch Head is special amongst some cultures because some cultures see the souls of children as being conceived of in like the form of small birds. So if you see a if you see a small bird or something like I did a little bit of reading on this. If you see like a small bird or something like that like after a baby dies or something, it's like the baby's spirit in the form of a small bird. Oh, that's so weird. I did yeah. not know that at all. Yeah. So either way, this is a unique burial no matter how you look at it because mm-hmm. she's not supposed to be there. It kind of coincides with this occupation, although radiocarbon dating has a pretty big error margin bar, so it might not be. True. And But it all kind of, the evidence all kind of points towards that. So, yeah. yeah. Really interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. All right. Well, I think we're done with that one. Let's head on over just a little ways and talk about some Viking textiles in yet another grave. People always get buried with the coolest things. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. All right. Welcome back to segment three of episode 128 of the Archaeology Show. And this is also known as the segment of historical yarns. (laughs) Why is there always one? I can't get away from yarn. Because I have a Google alert set up for archaeology textiles and I get amazing stories like this one whenever they come out. So. All right, then. Yeah. So this article is titled Unique Viking Textiles Found in Woman's Grave. So in Norway, there is an excavation in a place called Hestnes and it's in southern Trondelag County. <laughs> There's a lot of O's with lines through there. There are. I'm so sorry, <laughs> Norwegian people. Please forgive me. Anyway, <laughs> so this is basically central Norway from what I can understand. And this grave dates to approximately 850 to 950 CE, and it's in the middle of the like height of the Viking Age. So that's the time, and that's the place that we're talking about. Now, as for the textiles themselves and the grave goods and the things that they found there... First of all, finding Viking textiles is extremely rare. And I think that's just a preservation issue. And also, 
textiles and clothing were really, really valued because it's not the kind of thing where you just like would throw it away and go hit up Old Navy and buy six <laughs> new t-shirts each season. Like It's Old Viking. <laughs> Right. Like you couldn't do that. So I think it's just not super common to find discarded clothing because they would literally wear them until they wore out and, mm-hmm. and there was nothing left to preserve. So in this case, it's very rare to find these kind of textiles. The other thing that's rare here is not only did they find textile, but they found a comparatively large piece. Usually they're finding a couple centimeters, maybe. But this one is really large. It's 11 centimeters. And then the final unique thing is is that it is also embroidered. Usually they find plain cloth in association with Viking burials and Viking sites. However, this one is embroidered. Does the embroidery say made in Norway? Oh, man, that would be so nice if it did, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it does not. Um, but it does fit with the region, I guess, the embroidery does. What what little of it that they can see. So. What, what uh, Did they say anything about the embroidery? Like, embroidery... For those of us that don't really totally understand what that means, it's like threads on top of other threads that make a design, right? Right. Like they've used thread to create a design on the fabric itself. Mm -hmm. And I think it's only on the outer piece of her outfit. There's like a cape that she's wearing and the embroidery is on that cape. So it's some kind of decorative like outer layer, basically. Yeah. So a little more about the burial here. She was buried in a wooden burial chamber with with a long mound above the grave. And this is actually super unique for this area because in central Norway, where the grave was found, they don't usually do this kind of burial. It's more common in Germany, Denmark, Sweden, and then some in southern Norway. Mm -hmm. So right off the bat, like this is a pretty unique burial because of the shape and the way it was done. And then the other thing that is interesting, well, one of the many things that is interesting <laughs> is this fabric itself, the embroidered fabric, it was it was preserved on top of a turtle brooch. That's how, that's why they think it is some kind of outer layers because this turtle-shaped brooch likely held some underlayer of clothing mm. on right. and then the embroidered piece of fabric was on top of it, but they found them like together with the fabric on top of the turtle. Okay. So in addition to the the fabric on top of the turtle brooch, they also found a three-lobed brooch, which, again, is unusual for this area. I saw that. What the hell? Why is it unusual? And what is three-lobed brooch I don't brooch know. Means? They don't. They didn't. They did not <laughs> expand on why that is unusual or and what exactly it looked like. It's just that that particular shape is not common to this area. Hmm. So that's all I can tell you. Sorry. Now, this was really interesting to me. And it, they also found several hundred miniature pearls. Hundred. Several hundred. Right. I know it sounds like a lot, but it's actually not that much. Like my wedding shawl that I that I knit beads into, there were several thousand in that. So Right. But you bought those at like a bead store. Yes, but these miniature pearls are very similar in shape to the type of beads that I would have been knitting into a shawl. But this goes along with some of the other things we're going to talk about in the rarity of what she had. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, several hundred miniature pearls means miniature pearls were found, you know, from where they get miniature pearls from. Miniature clams? I don't I, know. I know. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> no, they didn't really talk about where they came from or anything like that. Just that they were clustered on her right shoulder. Mm-hmm. And they don't know if that means it's from a necklace that kind of fell to the side and then 
broke apart there or if it's because they were embroidered on the right shoulder of whatever she was wearing. So in addition to the the pearls and things that they found that they think might have been sewn into the fabric, maybe. They also found the remains of eight different textiles, not just the embroidered one. Six of these textiles were wool and two of them were linen. And what I thought was really interesting about that is that they these different fabrics, the reason they have them is because they were pinned together by the various brooches and things that they found in the area of her clothing. And because they're pinned together they're the layers are pinned together and they can see like, Oh, this one was underneath this one. And this one was on top of this one. And they get this like layering of how the fabrics were when they were pinned together. And they can use that to kind of reconstruct the outfit that she was wearing when she was put into the grave, which I thought that was so cool because it's, we don't have, we don't have images you know we don't have yeah. photos we don't have pictures where I mean, there might be a painting or two around but mm-hmm. they don't really give you a good idea of what an everyday woman's outfit was now yeah. not, i don't think this was an everyday no, woman she definitely so. had some money she was important so right. like but still to know like what configuration of clothing she was wearing was and my favorite part of this article and i'm just going to read this this is what one of the experts that they had consulting on the textile said she says We imagine that the woman was wearing a pinafore dress, which was fastened with turtle brooches. Under the dress, she probably had on a sark or shirt of linen or fine wool. Over her her shoulders, she was likely wearing a cape with embroidered decorative elements. So we've got like long shirt type thing underneath, right? Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, we've got a pinafore. Do you know what a pinafore is? No. Think of like Dorothy, like that. The, the blue dress that Dorothy wears where it comes like the straps come over the shoulder and you've got like you don't you can't really you can't picture Dorothy right I now I really can't picture Dorothy right <laughs> oh now oh my god alright well <laughs> listeners ignore him picture Dorothy she, it, it's a long dress sometimes there's sleeves on pinafore sometimes there's not it's unclear here as to what it was but. I feel like if you can actually picture Dorothy right now you don't need to explain to you what a pinafore is <laughs> that's true <laughs> that's probably also something you know <laughs> that's true basically it's like a layering dress almost like a vest type of situation and there would have been brooches attaching the straps or attaching the back that's probably what the turtle brooches were for and then over that there's a the the cape and that's the piece with the embroidery and it's the high quality like decorative thing the cape also had like a braid along the edge of it that was both for decoration and also for a function because what braids do is add stability to the edge of the garment Mm -hmm. so kind of was a dual purpose sort of situation there so Yeah, I just, I thought that was so cool to get this, like, really strong picture into what what a woman in this time period, a wealthy woman, would have been wearing. It's very cool. Yeah, and one of the things I liked in the article was, they talked about all these textiles and what she was wearing and how rare it was for her to have not only, like, that amount of fabric on her, but, like, the types of fabrics. And one of the analogies they used was making sails in the Viking era. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so... They said it takes up to around 2,000 sheep, so the wool from 2,000 sheep, to make a Viking Age sail. And Vikings obviously sailed all over the place. They had lots of sails, right? They probably had extra sails on board if they were smart. So while that is a striking fact, they said that in today's dollars, if you were to look at, I guess, I don't know how they were calculating this, like 
if you were to just buy the sheep, process the wool, and make a sale, yeah, they said it would cost about between fifteen and twenty million uh, Norwegian kroner, which. I don't know. When I was in Norway a long time ago, a kroner was worth like seven kroner to a dollar, I think, or something like that. I don't know what it is today, but either way, you're still talking millions of dollars more than yeah, likely. it's a lot. And I'm like, okay, millions of dollars. That tells me two things. One, you can't equate things like that in the past to things like that today mm-hmm. because things were valued in the past in a very different way, which also makes me reflect on this woman's clothing, right? Like, sure, clothing was hard to make, but that's just part of your life. Mm-hmm. You know, clothing is a hard thing to make. Great. Yeah. It's hard. Move on. Mm-hmm. So, and I understand all the jewelry and all this stuff like that. And you can look at other burials and say, yes, they were not buried with these types of things. Mm-hmm. They were not buried with these types of jewelry. But we also don't have a lot of burials from this time period, right? Because they, they even said that. So it's interesting to me the value. Like we place this value on making a sale and how much that would be. And we equate that to how much would it cost to make all her clothes. It would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars today to make all her clothes. Mm-hmm. But would it really? Because they didn't value things that way. Well, yeah, and also I think the piece they're missing is that they would make the thing one time and then you would wear it for years and years and years, you know? Even then, no one I know or ever will know can afford to pay $100,000 for a jacket even if they wear it for the next 20 years. Sure. But that's the that's the equivalency that they're making here in cost, which tells me that either we've got it wrong on what it, the effort level of effort it took to make this kind of thing or the level of effort wasn't seen as that kind of level of effort to the people that were doing it. Like they weren't looking at this woman going, my God, she's wearing a hundred thousand dollar jacket. No, I don't think they were because I think they had lots and lots of sheep. Like you said, they were making sales all the time. They needed tons of sales for their Viking ships that they were. And women's clothing. And for men's clothing too. (laughs) Everybody wore wool. And so it was just, there was a much bigger industry around it. And I don't, I think that the wool from 200 sheep was just a drop in the bucket, probably because yeah. it was part of the part of their lifestyle. They needed wool; they made a lot of it. You could probably walk across Denmark on the backs of sheep and never touch the ground back then. <laughs> oh, it'd be so soft. I know, right? And squishy. It's like walking on clouds. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing that they're going to try to do in the future with these textile remnants is get an idea of color. Now, they don't know just from looking at it. It just looks kind of like a a brown, muddy thing. And it probably was dyed at some point, but they don't know what color. Given how fancy she seemed. Yeah, exactly. So they're going to do some chemical analysis to try to see if there's some remnant of color in there, which would be really interesting to Mm -hmm. find out. But they're not sure that they're going to be able to because the, the thing about dyeing wool and plant fibers back in the day that, you know, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, whatever, is that it was always plant dyes, and those dyes just like leach right out back into the ground mm. when they're buried. So right. the chances of them figuring that out are are pretty low. But I'm sure there's some kind of really really cool chemical processes they could do to see what what. Yeah. I mean, they know how they made the colors. They know sure. like indigo. They know how they got the color, the indigo plant. You know, so hopefully they can find some remnants and figure it out. Yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, that's it for these news articles. Uh, I just want to wrap up with a couple more things. I've been dropping on Mondays uh, our newsletter that has three news articles in it. So check that out. You can go over to arcpodnet.com and just scroll up the page a little bit. There'll be a pop-up and it says, be the first or whatever. And you can just type in your email address. Probably going to change that at some point, but that's how you get your name on the mailing list. And then 
you will start getting them on Mondays and Fridays. Fridays have just our list of you know podcast episodes that we released. Also, just a final note on us and this podcast in general. Like we can't do a hundred percent of research on everything, and we can't talk about every variation of every article. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah. and I just wanted to make a note of that because we've had some comments, and I really do appreciate the comments because it gives us constructive feedback. But I just want to let everybody know that you know our point and goal with this podcast is to. Two things. One, talk about archaeology in the news from the perspective of archaeologists so mm-hmm. we can see how somebody with, I guess, our training and background looks at these things through through that lens. But also to bring these news articles to you. So, you know, maybe you're driving or on a treadmill or something like that or on a walk and you don't have time to go do that. So you're going to listen to this podcast and mm-hmm. get some enjoyment out of it and learn something about history. These aren't intended to be a deep dive. These aren't intended to be a thorough study of a single topic. And we try to do our best to just bring you the archaeology news and maybe a little bit of a dive on some other topics sometimes. Yeah, we'll do as much research as we can. But given the amount of time that we have to talk about these things, you know, we we do our best. And just know that if we don't talk about something, then it's not that we don't know what happened or we don't know it exists. It's just that it was likely cut for time or just not part of the topic of that day because there was no yeah. time for it. Or just this is a podcast, not a scholarly journal. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're doing our best. Yep. So there you go. Anyway, we really appreciate all of our listeners. We've been growing in listenership, which means you guys are sharing this episodes, which is awesome. So please share it out to family and friends who might have an interest in archaeology and, you know, learning something about the world. And then check out all the other shows we have over at arcpodnet.com. All right. See you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.